Well, I think I could ask you what the theme of this book of 1 John is. And I think a number of you could tell me. You could take me right to the chapter and to the verse and perhaps even to the very word that is the theme of the book. That ye may have the joy of the Lord in you. That's 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. These things write I unto you that your joy might be full and that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Now, the outline that I've given on this book is chapter 1. It is how. How does this happen? Two, what happens? Chapter three, who makes it happen? By whom? And we come here to this opening verse, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And then we move to chapter four, who cares? Well, John cares. The false prophets, they don't care. The worldly person doesn't care, but the person who's born of God does care. And then chapter 5 is the chapter of whosoever believeth. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And so this book is about entering into a marvelous fellowship with God. Now, here in this third chapter, it's about assurance, the assurance of sins forgiven. And it starts with this amazing love of God to sinners, giving the full status of children of God. And so, assurance is really the theme of this chapter. And as you read down, you will see there in verse 19, for example, and shall assure our hearts. So there's the very word, assure. And then in verse 21, then have we confidence toward God. Now, I have a couple of questions for you tonight. Are you sure? Are you sure that you're a Christian? Are you sure that you have this partnership with God and that your soul is united to Him by grace, by the Spirit? Can you say tonight, we have this confidence toward God? Now, it's possible that you are a very confident person. I'm looking at some of the boys and girls here tonight as well. Maybe in school, you're very confident when it comes to doing math or writing or drawing and you might say, I have no problem taking on these tasks, and I'm able to dig into them and do them with all my gifts and talents. But there are many people that are very gifted, very talented, very successful in this world, but their souls are not saved. They are lost sinners on the broad road to destruction. And so, our confidence is not in men or in ourselves. But you'll see here in 1 John 4, 21, that we have confidence to
toward God. Now, that's what I want to speak to you about tonight. Having this assurance of your peace with God that you have real and eternal fellowship with Him. Now, all preachers like to have points or headings, and maybe you take notes. Maybe you like to write down some things that the preacher says, and it might help you to get this first one, that assurance is ours when we are moved to be like God. We can have assurance when in our hearts there is a desire that we want to be like God. Now, here in this chapter 3, 1, there are two big surprises for us. The big surprise is that God has such an amazing love for our souls. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Now, it's a big surprise because in the previous verse, chapter 229, the last verse of chapter 2, God is described as being righteous. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And so God is strict. He's holy. He is unchangeable. He will not change his character. He will not reduce his law. He is a terrible God terrible toward the wicked. And yet the same God, behold what manner of love that he hath bestowed upon us. And the surprise is that the God who is so awesomely holy is also awesomely merciful and full of love towards those whom he calls to himself. Now, this is the God who lives in perfect light. Back in chapter 1, John talked about we have fellowship with God if we walk in the light as he is in the light. There's no shadow in him. There's no dark spot. There's no sin. There's no gray area. He is perfect light. And when we come into his presence, that light of God exposes our sins. And this is the same God who has so loved us, and he takes us into his family as his own children. And so this chapter begins with, Behold, it is a wonderful surprise. And that's the good news of the gospel. Now, the second surprise of these opening verses is that while we do not know all the future blessings that are in store for us, we do know that we're going to be changed into His likeness. If you read verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. 
Now, I want you to get those words. We shall be like him. We who are sinners, we who are sons of Adam, we who are wayward and rebellious, we who were strangers to God. This is the great surprise. We shall be like him. Now, this is the power of adoption. We are brought into the family of God. Now, in human adoption, there can be no guarantee that the child is going to be like the adopting parent. A mom and dad could, uh, a husband and wife could go along to an orphanage, set their heart upon a boy or girl, or maybe more than one boy or girl, and bring that child home. But there is no guarantee that that child is going to grow into the likeness of mother and father. Now, they can be taught some manners, taught some discipline, taught how to live, what to say, what not to say, and there are certain things, do's and don'ts. But what if the child has Irish genes and got red hair? Well, it's impossible for that child to become like the parents that have adopted. And perhaps as that boy or girl grows up into teenage years and adulthood, the disparity grows bigger and bigger. This is not your son. This, this boy or girl, this young man or woman, doesn't look anything like the adopting parents. Because we can give a child a new name but we can't give a child a new nature. But when God adopts us as his children, we're not only given a new name, but we are born of God. The nature of God is born in us, and we are conformed into his image. And that's the whole purpose of our salvation. And when a person says, I want to be saved, I want to be a Christian, a Christ one, you're really saying, I want to be like the Lord. I want to be changed into the wonderful image of the Lord Jesus. And that's the whole power of salvation. Now, let me ask you, do you really want to be a Christian? Do you really want to be changed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God? Or are you saying, no, 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 I want to be like the world. I want to be like the ungodly. I want to be free to do my own thing. Well, then you don't really want to be a Christian. You're just pretending that you want to be a Christian. You want the name, but you don't want the nature. The gospel is all about changing us into the very nature of God. Now, in Romans 8, you have a great uh, doctrinal explanation of the power of the gospel. And in verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. You know that verse? Romans 8, 29? It's a powerful statement. And that's the gospel. 
And that's what happens when you are born again, when you are brought into the family of God. Now, what does this do to us? Look at verse 3 in 1 John 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. In every child that is born of God and given this hope of glory, there is a burning zeal to be holy, personally holy. And that's a given. That ought to be automatic. Once you are born again, once you are indwelt by the Spirit, once you have the new nature in you, there's going to be within you a yearning. I want to be conformed more and more to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the whole argument of John as you go down this chapter 3 right through to verse 8. Would you read it with me? And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. There you are. Whosoever abideth in him, if you are united by faith to the Lord Jesus, the last thing that you will want to do is sin. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now, let me ask you, are you repenting of all known sin? And this is the argument of the Apostle John here in this chapter 3. This is the one who continually commits sin. He's not born of God. You're a child of the devil. John is very black and white. John is the apostle of love, but he's very, very clear. You're either a belong to, uh, you're a child of Satan, or you are born again a child of God. And you can know the difference. Verse 9 tells us of the power of the new nature in every Christian. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. There is a holy seed planted in his or her heart. There is an earnest striving after purity and obedience to the will of God. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect in this world. And uh, this word 
that John is giving here does not teach us that a Christian will become sinless in this world. But you will not willfully, deliberately want to sin. Sin may catch up with you. You may be tempted and caught by surprise. You might say, what was I thinking? I was a fool. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have done that. You are hating the very sin that has defiled you. And that verse 9 tells us that it's because of this new nature in your heart. Now, really what John is saying here is no different from what the Lord Jesus taught when he said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And he talked about the, the, the evil tree and the good tree, and ye know it by its nature, the fruit that is brought forth. And so when some says, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm a child of God, but he brings forth the fruit of sin. No, that's not the new nature. That's not the fruit that the Lord gives. That is the way of the world. Now we move on. We're going down to verse 11, uh, right through to 16. And you'll see that assurance is ours. First of all, we saw when we're moved to be like God. That was the first thing. When we're moved to be like God, then we know that we're born of God. <clears throat> the second thing that John says in this chapter is that we know that assurance is ours when we're moved to love the brethren. Verse 11 to 16. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. Now, you just can't study, read, or even go to 1 John and not notice the great emphasis that is upon loving our brothers or sisters in the Lord. When John was an old man, he was carried into the meetings, and he was famous for saying, little children love one another. And he kept saying it over and over and over. And when he was asked, John, why do you keep saying this? And he said, because it is the command of the Lord. And when that is done, all is done. That's when we are serving the Lord and serving His church. And this was indeed the Lord's command, as John recorded in his gospel. John 13, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And really, in 1 John 3, 11, uh, John is restating this. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, the Lord demonstrated this in a very powerful way, because when He was gathered with His disciples, He took a towel and a basin of water, and began to wash the disciples' feet. 
Now, in Israel, when people walk the dusty roads in sandals, feet got very messy. They sweated. The clay and dust stuck to their feet. And when they would walk in through the door of where they were visiting, they really felt uncomfortable that way. And so it was quite common for a host to offer a way of washing the visitor's feet, supplying the water, supplying a towel. But in this case, the Lord got down and he washed his own disciples' feet. And in that was a tremendous display of love and service to the people of God. Now, the Lord did not institute that in church fellowship we should wash one another's feet. And through the history of the Christian church, that was never taken that way. Now, there are some extreme groups, and they do take it that way, and they literally practice when you come along to a church meeting, you get your feet washed. Now, it's very different today when you step out of a modern car and you walk up a paved driveway and you've got nice shoes and socks. Your feet are no, no way the same as in the days of the disciples. But when the Lord washed those disciples' feet, it was a display of love and service. And he gave that example that we should love one another. We know that we have passed from death. Let's go to verse 14, chapter 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. In other words, if you're out to wound, offend your brother, drive him away, you're doing the devil's work. If you serve, encourage, build up, and seek to assist your brother, then you are like the Lord Jesus in your service. Now, John brought in Cain and Abel in this passage, and we know that Cain slew Abel. Why did he hate Abel so much? Why did there well up in, in, in Cain's heart this animosity against his own brother? We know it's because Abel worshiped God. His worship was accepted. Cain was not. And there became a root of bitterness that grew into hatred and then to murder. And of course, the world has this persecuting spirit against the child of God. And that can happen where people lose their love, turns to bitterness, and then it turns to acts to drive them away. And around the world tonight, there are cultures and peoples where Christians are persecuted, where people of God are hated 
even to the point where they drive them out because of this hatred that is in their hearts. Now, that is true, and I'm thinking of our own missionaries in various parts of the world. It's true in Nepal. In Nepal today, it is a crime to evangelize. It's a crime to tell someone that you need Christ in your heart and you need to be saved. In Kenya, where we have missionaries, in Uganda, the political situation is so tenuous that a Christian has to be very careful how they witness for the Lord. The same in Liberia, where the Reverend Decanio has a radio station, and he has to be very careful how he conducts that ministry. And they could shut him down. They could tell him, you can't do this. And so in the world, there is an hostility against the people of God. In the political realm, likewise, in the LGBTQ agenda, there is this spirit of animosity against the witness of the gospel. And this is becoming the red line of toleration or no toleration. And this makes Christian love and Christian fellowship all the more important. When you walk through the door of this church, this is to be your sanctuary from the world, the place where you are built up in your faith, where you may express your delight in the Lord, where you may sing your head off in the praises of our God, where you will feel at home, where you come amongst those who are your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. Now, how far should this Christian fellowship go? What limits are put upon it? Let's go down to chapter 3 and verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When Paul the Apostle taught husbands to love their wives, what was the limit? Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, that He gave His life for her. There's no limit. And here John is saying, chapter 316, that just as the Lord has laid down His life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There should be no task too much. There should be no time that you're not willing to sacrifice. There should be no limit to the extent to which you will go to encourage, to assist, and build up a fellow brother and sister in the Lord. You're to be known as one who are willing to lay down your life that you might demonstrate the love of Christ to those around you. Paul said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. 
who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant. As Christians, we're to serve. And it begins by serving one another. But it has to be genuine. It has to be from the heart. And it has to be our attitude as a Christian. Now, we'll come to this in our final point tonight as we move down to verse 18. John, he really presses the issue of reality and genuineness. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is the true nature, the true fashion, not just empty words or platitudes, but in real ways of demonstrating Christian love. It might be you going to someone and asking, how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you in the Lord? It might be, I hope I'm not a hindrance to you in your Christian life. And the born-again Christian has a much more acute conscience that is alive unto God. And to have hearts that minister truth to us. That's what this is all about. And you'll see down there in verse 21, it shows that the proof of a new nature is that our own hearts condemn us not. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And so we know there's an inner voice, there's a conscience, there's that witness within. And maybe it's a witness that we have grieved someone or grieved the Lord and we need to put that right. Now, down in verse 21, it shows the, the proof of a new nature that our hearts do not condemn us. And we do those things that are pleasing in God's sight. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And in that, there's the very witness of the Spirit of God. And you'll see there in verse 23, and this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Those are the two things. Believe on our Lord Jesus and display our love to one another. And all of this adds up to proof that we are born of God because the old nature doesn't want to do this. The carnal, unconverted soul does not want to use the name of the Lord Jesus and be a witness for Him. And the carnal, worldly person does not want to serve, but rather wants to be served. And so these are evidences of our conversion, of our new birth, of the fruit of a new nature. 
Now, the ultimate proof you will find in verse 24 uh, is our Christians, not just that we abide in the Lord, but that He abides in us. And he that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and He in Him, and hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He has given us. And so in every convert, in every born-again soul, the Holy Spirit comes in to dwell. And this new fruit, this loving our Lord Jesus, loving our brethren, will be the new nature flowing out. And it's not just a change of leaves and branches, but it's a change of root and of nature. And you can know tonight that you're a Christian because you love the Lord and you love His people. You want to be among His people. You want to promote His people. You want to encourage His people. You want to be a part of serving the Lord. Now, there was a Sunday school teacher, and she counseled a little girl about that text in the Bible, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. And that is, uh, well, let me turn to it here in case I uh, mix it up in my quoting of it. John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 12, it's a very well-known verse, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, this teacher wisely showed the verse and asked the girl what it meant. And the girl prayed over this promise. The teacher asked, what does this now mean? And the girl said, it means that I am saved. How do you know, the teacher said. And the girl pointed to the verse with her finger and then to her heart. And she said, I know it by this verse in the Bible, and I know it in my heart. And that was good. That was right. Because there is the experience that goes along with the power of the gospel within our hearts. And what a wonderful thing to have this blessed assurance. And this assurance motivates us to serve the Lord wherever we can. The Golden Gate Bridge down in San Francisco was built many years ago. And when it was built, it was the longest span in the world at that time. But in the first half of the building of that bridge, 23 men fell to their death. It was a dangerous, dangerous adventure. And so they halted the work, and they spent $100,000 putting in a safety net so that if anyone should fall, they would be saved from falling to their death. And it said that it saved tens, 10 men's lives in the second half of the building of that bridge. But also, the work went on faster because when men felt safe, 
they could give themselves more to the work. And that's what assurance of salvation does in your heart and mine. When we know that we are in Christ and are sure of our salvation, it doesn't make us lazy. It doesn't make us slack. It doesn't make us worldly. But rather that assurance motivates us to serve all the more to live all the more hating sin and living more and more unto righteousness. And so it's a great thing for a Christian to have this blessed assurance. And that assurance comes, as we have learned tonight, by enjoying this love of God. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. This comes when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just in word, but in deed and in truth. Now, I want you to pray about something tonight when we close the meeting. I want you to pray about a way by which you can prove your salvation by ministering to a brother or sister in Christ this week. This week. To do something. To enter into some ministry of encouragement, some deed, some act, some words, genuine words, of course, whereby you can prove that you're born of God because you love the brethren. You love your brothers and sisters. You love the people of God and want to serve them. Now, you're not called to wash feet, but you are called to humbly serve God's people in whatever way is required. It could be someone that's sick, someone that's cast down, someone that just needs a little encouragement. And John, when he wrote this epistle, when he talked about loving the brethren, he didn't limit it to save people, but to others beyond the church that need the gospel. And surely you know someone that needs the gospel and needs to know there's a way back to God. You can be that messenger to them in the week to come. So let's unite in prayer for a moment and ask the Lord to guide us. I will include myself in this, that we might by some means find a way to serve one another. O God, our Father, we come in prayer this evening in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you will write these things on every one of our hearts. Lord, you have given us a wonderful salvation. And you have given us a wonderful assurance. You have not left us in the dark. 
You have not left us in a state of purgatory of mind, but you have given us this blessed assurance. Now, Lord, I pray that you will bring to us ways and means that we may serve one another, that we will go forth with the gospel and that we will be your instruments to serve. And by this, all men will know that we are thy disciples. Use us, O Lord, we pray, and go before us as we seek to serve thee. This we plead and we pray and ask in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hymn 408 is our closing hymn tonight. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 408. 